Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? Today we're chatting to Charlie Arnott. He's an eighth generation cattle producer, educator and podcast host from Margan Pastoral Company in the southwest slopes of New South Wales. Hello Charlie. G'day Jane, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. I'm warmer, I'm assuming, at this end of the country than of yours. Um, Look, we're going to talk quite a lot about your your industry involvement and of course uh, your journey into regenerative and I'm really going to apologise because now that I'm thinking about that word too much I'm saying it terribly. Um, (laughs) But I realise that um, you're an eighth generation cattle producer so I want to know, you know, right at the beginning when you were growing up on this property, what was um, was it like the property that you were growing up on and and your family's attitude towards cattle production jane well thank you for having me on the podcast yeah i grew up at a, on our family farm hannah minnow at, at burua in the yeah, southwest slopes of new south wales so i've been farming all, all, all my life essentially um and my mother um she was uh, uh the daughter of a dairy farmer um, and I was on my mum's side and my father's side. Some of my family were, were um, involved in the biscuit company and also, and dad was in the, in the biscuit factory for some years. And, as kidding. So hang on, I've yeah. just found this whole other family, like Arnott's Biscuits. Yes, Goodness. yeah. I'm the far, first sort of generation of my line of the family that didn't go into the, into the factory. Um, into the Monte you know, Carlos. The career, yeah. I have been. We did go on tours of the factories years ago when I was a kid, and we did, um, yes, sneakily drop our fingers in the Monte Carlo ice, you know, icing vats uh, when I was looking and that sort of thing. Wow. So um, I, I've eaten quite a few in a day. <laughs> What's um, your favourite? Just completely segueing, we're going to come back really quickly. Oh, I don't know. You know, orange slice is a bit of a daggy favourite of mine. It's good, <laughs> it's good, it's good for smoko, like, you know, yeah. in dunking in tea. That's, yep. that's a bit of a... Bit of a favourite, really. But this um, is relevant because I reckon every smoko table in every farming enterprise in Australia at some point has cracked open a packet of Arnott's yeah, biscuits, and I know it's a family. it's a hotly contested um, place for favourite. Anyway, That's continue it. on, continue on. <laughs> um, continue, yeah. So, um, so I grew up on on at our farm at Burua, and we had uh, sheep and cattle. Um, and cropping, and we had shorthorn cattle was the, um, the the breed of choice, and we had um, dad had um, uh, uh, been involved with a family partnership up at um, a place called Yambergen, a property called Yambergen between St George and Durrambandi in Queensland, and that was the um, the the uh, Yambergen uh, shorthorn stud originated there, I think in the fifties, nineteen fifties, and. So that that family um, uh, enterprise was dispersed, and 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 so was the herd. So uh, my father took a third of that um, that uh, of the of the stud herd there, and and his cousins took the other um, two thirds. And so we brought our genetics with us, uh, as it were, to Burua, and they were very well suited to to that um, part of the world, as they seem to be all over Australia. So cattle, you know, was in my blood, and certainly. Um, you know, dairy and beef, and I just I, like I grew up with them. That was um, part of what we did every day, moving them around, or treating them, or doing something with them. So um, very comfortable around cattle, and um, and a big part of my life, to be honest. Mm. So I 
grew up, went away to school. The school I went to, the boarding school I went to, there was an ag club. So that involved um, um, showing cattle and um, stud cattle and some commercial cattle. And we used to you know, show them and wash them and train them up and take them to, to um, uh, district and then Easter show, this Royal Easter show and stay there for a couple of weeks. Um, because you know, again, my love of cattle was was strong, and 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 so that was a that was a really good way. Again, you know, some pretty intense handling of cattle, and that was fun. And so did university. Went away to university and did a course called rural science. I mean, there's not really been many steps through my life where cattle haven't had some role to play, and and certainly before that, I mean, before we our families, both my mum and dad's families, came to Australia, um, they you know. Were, Scotland and France, and certainly the Scottish component of that, you know, lots of um, uh, cattle breeding and husbandry over there too. So, yeah, strong, strong genetics from everywhere. So now this, you've realised that this is going to be your um, your career, but obviously uh, things sort of changed for you in, in terms of carrying on traditionally how maybe your parents and grandparents and everyone have done it. What was that mm. What was that point of, of difference? When did you decide to take things in a little bit of a different direction? Just a little bit of backstory. So I finished university, went to Sydney, worked in a pub for a few years and then... And, as one and, does. And then, as one does, yeah. And I was actually, I'll tell you what, from a from just, you know, dealing with people in a social, um, in, a, in a relationship point of view was, was um, invaluable. So I went back home and, and farmed as we had, as I grew up and as dad had it for you know, a few more years. And then <clears throat> but there was a series of um, pretty tough years, you know, the beginning of the millennial drought back in early 2000. You know, I was growing up, I guess, you know, um, uh, in some way, during <laughs> a little maybe. Um, and I guess I just started questioning what we were doing. I was sort of, <clears throat> I started questioning the status quo. Okay. You know, I was pretty sick of dealing with droughts, feeding animals, adjusting cattle. We sent cattle to Tamworth and in June and um, Walgett and all over the place. And I and that's what I'd always done as a child. You know, that's often had cattle on the adjustment. And I just started questioning why are we why are we running out of food that, and, and 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 so having to send them away. You know, so um, and then I went to a course one day in about 2004 in Burrawa called um, uh, and they the name of the course was um, Profiting from the Drought. Right, and I thought, wow, this would be pretty funny. Um, I went along, and then an um, organisation called RCS Australia up there at Yapoon, uh in Queensland, they'd run that course for a day, and it was um, it was life changing in that it really got me thinking about what I was doing. I'd never really been asked or asked myself, you know, what I was doing and, mm-hmm. and how what what you know was what I was doing, what I wanted to keep on doing. Um, and the guy, Sean Martin, who was the facilitator for the day, asked me at lunchtime, you know, was I happy? And I said to him, well, I'm not unhappy, which is really pathetic answer, I thought, um, in, on reflection. So I guess there were some external elements to it being drought, you know, some some just, I wouldn't say hardship, they were tough, but they were external pressures just making me question, oh, God, do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my life, this sort of battle against nature, as it seemed? Then there was internally, I was, yeah, just questioning my purpose, you know, like, did I, w- w- was I happy to be a farmer? You know, was I, was I cut out for this? Was this, you know, just because dad had a farm, does it mean that I have to have a farm, you know? So anyway, got me to a point of some extra training with RCS, um, did a course called Grazing for Profit. Um, and that was great because it, it sort of fell into a group of other farmers and grazers and so on who were, 
of a similar mindset. They were willing to change, looking at how to change, and some pretty challenging, more challenging questions um, sort of come up in that sort of environment, but really supportive people. Um, they, they have a pro, RCS of a program where they take clients through a sort of a, um, you know, some, some processes and some some board situations where yep. you get to share. Big picture thinking as well as big the... Big picture thinking, yep. yeah. So um, stand back and look at the big picture is 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 what we did. Um, and then that wasn't necessarily stepping into regenerative ag. I mean, it was, but it wasn't called that back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was holistic management, holistic farm management, um, which, you know, when people start thinking that way and thinking about the, the whole of their property and all of the... Um, all the facets, um, you start thinking more regeneratively. You start thinking, well, if I'm responsible for all this, how do I make sure I'm, I don't, I'm not constantly pouring inputs in it, for example, or how can I utilise what I have on farm to, instead of buying bags of fertiliser, how can I utilise the fertility of my farm and enhance that, you know, independently of that? So, so it's an economic and a natural health kind of, you had the two-tiered ways of thinking there too. Well, it was the economics always played a part, but I mean, up to that point, I'd had an economic relationship with my landscape. Mm-hmm. It was a resource to be used. And then when I sort of changed my perspective, and as I say, you know, I changed the paddock between my ears first before <laughs> I went and just did stuff out in the paddock. Um, I, I started considering that it's not a resource. Yes, it's a resource in that it's, a, it's something, but it wasn't there to be plundered. You know, I was mining that resource essentially and not considering it's... It, it was finite um, and that it actually, you know, nature, which is, as I say, you know, is our, is our biggest business partner. You know, we worry about our bank manager, our accountant and, you know, our whatever else, you know, we consider business partners in our farm business, our family, you know, our most influential and most powerful and most present business partner is nature. And I hadn't considered that. Um, and so when one does, you start, treating it with much more respect you start letting it function itself as it always has and you start looking at it in a way that is respective of the fact that you know when things go wrong on a farm it's 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 really i mean yes you might get a big storm but you might get a uh, it mightn't rain from for a year or two you know and i know in you know, queensland certainly you know seven years is that's that's you know a recent Phenomena. Well, it's still going to be, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it does get to a point where um, there's not much anyone can do, you know, or, mm. pre- or prepare or prepare for that. Mm. Um, but in say Burua, for instance, there was a um, we we'd have drought for a number of years, and 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 we would be praying for rain like every other farmer. And when it fell, it fell on bare ground that we had decided we had through our decision making had created by grazing too many animals there for too long a period of time that water goes sideways and it takes soil and it goes takes nutrients and it ends up in a dam and then it goes but what we do when we're um in a um uh, you know a different way of thinking and we're thinking and focusing on what we are um uh, in control of then as rain falls or when it falls or we prepare for when it falls, we leave ground cover there so that when it does actually land, it stays there and that plant utilises that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't It doesn't then go sideways, you know. So as an example of relinquishing our, our need to control everything on farm and not be so prescriptive, you know, that's one of the things I guess that I've learned is that 
you know, I don't adopt things, I adapt things. I see other ways of doing things. I consider that nature is my biggest business partner and it's going to do whatever it wants to do any day of the year. And if I can be flexible and I can consider that and I can prepare for that, then I'm better off than than waking up every morning trying to battle nature and thinking I'm going to win because um, at the end of the day, you know, I don't know anyone who's actually beaten nature because um, you just don't, you know. And as I said, it's all about changing my thinking before I went and did anything out in the paddock. It was just about going, wow, I'm actually, I'm really at the women nature and I can either understand that and acknowledge it and adapt to that or I can continue as I was to battle it. And that might be how I treat my animals in terms of their, their health, how I treat the soil, how I treat how I manage my pasture. Um, there's lots of facets to it. And again, there's no right or wrong. I'm not here to preach about you got to do it this way. It's more about, you know, um, for me it was about just really stepping back and considering my involvement, my relationship with with my business and my my landscape um and and my and my um and the nature that um the part of the world that i was i was responsible for yeah so and that's a fairly dramatic you know mind shift i guess um, and it doesn't sound like it happened overnight so what was the reaction to your family and your neighbors when you sort of really kicked this into gear and said radio things have got to change um great question jane so what I did, I wouldn't suggest to anyone. I went cold turkey. <laughs> okay. um, I just, I was doing halfway through the grazing for profit course. I sort of rang, you know, we, we, there were some things I don't regret doing in terms of, you know, things I implemented immediately, which are very simple. They didn't cost anything. And it was just like literally a, just a change in management, you know. And, and one of those was instead of having five different mobs of sheep or, or cattle, let's just say I had all my cattle in different age groups. So I had my heifers here and my, my mm-hmm. you know, my four-year-olds there and my five-year-olds there. Yep. When someone asked me, why do you have them all separate? I couldn't answer them. Was this what we always done? So I put them in one mob, which meant they got through the grass quicker in each paddock, but that's actually a good thing, you know. So I was getting away from a essentially a set stock situation to a to a situation where I was moving cattle through paddocks much quicker because there were more of them in there at any one time which allowed me to rest more paddocks or the paddocks they weren't in they could recover so that was that was an immediate thing and that was very positive some of the not so positives were I still I didn't have a handle on how to graze it I tended to overgraze those paddocks because there were more I was used to leaving them in there for a week or yeah. two or whatever you know Easy to forget that they're all in there together That's right and and also from a, from a and some of your your listeners maybe um you know the beef producers and croppers as well you know I basically stopped I I I sold the our spray rig pretty much immediately um and I stopped using it in which case you know I was I, I my cropping enterprise was left dangling, you know. In in a it wasn't so bad because it was getting towards the end of the season, but I I, I would suggest to people that um, if they're thinking about changing, and, and this is probably more to do with cropping because with animals it's not the changes aren't so dramatic in terms of what one has to do to change. In cropping, you know, um, one might think about. Um, just carving off a, a portion of the budget they've put aside for for their cropping, you know, um, budget. What they're yeah. going to spend per hectare, and use a more, you know, 
softer or more regenerative or more biological fertilizer, for instance, as an example. Yeah. With cat with cattle, the simplest thing that I did, as I said, was instead of having all these age groups in different paddocks for no particular reason, mm. um, you know, they all had yeah. ear tags, I could still identify them. Yeah, you just boxed them up and it was a bit I boxed easier. Them up mm. and then the, yeah, so that didn't cost me a thing. Kept a couple of hours of opening a few gates and letting them all in together. Um, then I spent some money on wire, as in I actually made those paddocks smaller um, so that I could even, you know, they would be in paddocks for even less amount of time. Um, I put troughs on, um, you know, so that given I was breaking up paddocks into smaller paddocks, I needed to supply more water, you know, better water yeah. to them. So there were some immediate changes. Some started costing money because it's just infrastructure. That's just the way it is. We put a couple more bores down. Um but what it also changed my day in that I was I was with the cattle more often because I was moving them every pretty much every day as opposed to once every three weeks. Now, for your large your listeners with larger holdings, of course, then it doesn't mean you've got to go and move your cattle every day. It just, you know, really the principle is that you've got animals together. Um, if you need to identify them, just smarten up your, your, your ear tag identification system. Um, and you move them um, they're boxed in and they move they move through paddocks quicker because there's more of them and you know that's the easiest thing to do without even splitting up more paddocks and you'll see that the by virtue of the fact that the cattle aren't in them for as long your paddocks recover and they get to um because plants need recovery you know they they need time to to express their grassness and go through from stage one two to three you know that reproductive stage if you let them so um, but we were set stocking a lot of paddocks and the grass, we just weren't getting the productivity because we kept on kept on um, uh, not flogging them all the time. That happened in a, in a drought. But um, we, we loved, I guess this is probably a takeaway for me, um, Jane, is that we were loving, we loved our cattle more than our grass. <laughs> yes, and okay. what I, what, and what I, what I changed is I love my grass more than my cattle. Now, yeah. doesn't mean I don't like cattle. Doesn't mean I mistreat them or anything. It just my priorities are to retain is my grass and my yeah. grass cover. And, and I my think body. I think that's becoming a bit more of a popular and you know and as it should that whole you were grass farmers first and beef producers second. I don't think that's completely unheard of across the mm. whole industry. I think that shift is is coming in more. Do you think that this translates because, um, you know, regenerative agriculture has been around for a little while. How does it translate yeah. to different soil types and different animals and that sort of thing? Yeah, good question. Look, my experience, um, and it's not vast, you know, I haven't worked on, I've been up at the Kimberleys, for instance, and um, and, and worked very short periods of time up there, So, but I'm not a landholder there. I don't understand that landscape or in the Cape or, you know, um, uh, um, you know Tasmania, or so. mm. but that doesn't matter because the principles are the same. So you know whether whether it doesn't really matter what your soil type is. Um, I think there wouldn't be anyone who'd argue that we can do a better job with our soils, and that we've over the last two hundred and thirty years have essentially depleted the quality of our soil and the, and the quantity. So any anything that's going to improve the quality and quantity of soil could be deemed regenerative, and Grazing animals in this sort of way, we just explained, um, is a is a is a way to do that. Um, so, you know, 
yeah, so the soil type doesn't really ma- doesn't really matter. I mean, there are some you know site specific um, um, considerations um, in terms of you know the um, the current or, or previous erosion sort of profile, whether whether how sensitive it is, how brittle the environment is, what the vegetation is. I think an important thing for graziers to consider is that instead of just letting cattle into a paddock and saying, oh, they're just in there to eat grass, is to consider what you want them to do while they're in there. You know, they're a tool essentially um, to that we can use effectively to improve soil and grow better grass. So having an objective for each time we put a cattle into a paddock is, is, a, is a good thing. Are we coming into spring? We're going to expect the spring flush. We're going to eat that grass down so it's in a really good state to start explode into the spring um is there a lot of dry material there um you know do, you do anything with that in the particular you know so there's 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 site specific um uh considerations but i mean there's six or seven sort of grazing principles that um rcs and, and other organizations and hm um talk about and you know they're, they're pretty straightforward and you know, it's about matching um, uh, stock and rate to carrying capacity, and and not you know, and monitoring the grass that you have, and budgeting so you know how much is in front of you, and not hitting the wall and suddenly going, oh, I've got no feed, I've got to buy or sell, or you know. So it's about being prepared. How long have you been doing this for, Charlie? What have you seen on your place over that period of time? Was it sort of you know, obviously there was a bit of a few little things to learn at the beginning, but when did it really kick in and you saw some positive results? Well, I guess there's um, positive results, uh, you know, when it when, it's, when there's a dry period and, and, and we um, we get rain, we, we, we hold the moisture. You know, it doesn't, we've got, we haven't got bare ground or very little bare ground because sometimes after a few years it's hard to, as well, you well know, you know, retain total ground cover. So we retain generally um unless it's an absolute gully raker you know the moisture where it lands so that's a positive so it's in the soil ready to be used by plants and 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 um contribute to the biology there um so we come out of drought reasonably reasonably well we don't use any any animal health products at all we don't we don't drench or vaccinate um you know for worms or backline or um lice or anything we went cold turkey doing that too and i probably wouldn't recommend that you know um, to anyone, it's just a matter of being comfortable. It's really about being comfortable because the animals are pretty adaptable. Um, if the soil is improving and, and, and right and you'll grow much healthier plants and it's the nutrition that, that is the most important thing um, about animals, not so much genetics in terms of their health and, and, and you know whether they marble up and they've got a frame score of three or four or five or whatever, that's obviously there's a genetic component of that. But if we can get their nutrition right and give them a, a really thorough spectrum of, of nutrients because we've got a whole lot of diversity in our pastures, then, you know, they can handle having a higher worm burden and it doesn't affect them anyway. They they don't get as sick, you know, they don't get um, scald, they don't get, you know, pink eye, they don't, I'm not saying they don't altogether, I mean, we, that, that happens every now and again, but, you know, you get much less of it to a point where you don't even worry about it, you know, because because they because essentially they're healthy, you know. When you've got healthy animals, they're generally happier, and and if they're happier, they're easier to handle, and we're more considerate when we're handling them as well. So I guess back to your question there, Jane, you know, our we're less stressed, you know, we're dealing with animals that are less stressed because they're on better nutrition, they're behaving better, 
and essentially we behave better because we're not having to sort of yahoo and you know deal with unruly cattle or um, we treat them in a way you know, we use low stress stock handling um, techniques. Um, so there's animal health benefits, there's soil benefits, um, there's pasture benefits, and, and what we do is we, you know, our, our, our pastures are becoming more diverse because we're interfering less. You know, we don't spray out Patterson's Curse and Erodium like we used to out of pasture. I don't know why I ever did that, you know, because it's actually contributing something. What about weeds? Because weeds aren't usually as palatable as some of these other species of grass. So do you have much problem with weeds? It's interesting you say that because weeds are weeds and often spiky and um, have, you know, um, poisonous berries and, mm. and, and, and aspects of them like that because they are absolutely nutritious. Mm. Um, so where where the nutrition comes in and where the palatability comes into is when there's a lot of them. So often our definition of a weed, you know, my old definition of a weed is basically plant that's in a place you don't want them to be. And that's generally the result of our management. So um, we might have really eaten out a paddock really hard, and not that we do anymore, but we used to. We would get a lot of annual weeds. And what those weeds are doing are trying to fill a gap, quite literally. You know, nature is recruiting something to get in there and do a job because there's bare ground or, you know, there's a nutrient deficiency. A lot of every plant, one of its roles is to accumulate a mineral. Right, that's just like cop, you know, Patterson's curse accumulates um, copper. Tobacco, tobacco plant accumulates phosphorus. You know, they're all doing something, and when we identify that they're actually doing us a favour, then we change our attitude to them. Some are big tap rooted things like a Scotch thistle. They're trying to, you know, get through a hard pan, and so, you know, when we when we change our grazing management, we get less weeds because we give them less opportunity and less need to be there. If we if we set stock, and this is my absolute experience, um, we create windows of opportunity for them to jump in because they they have to jump in. They're trying to do something. They're trying to heal the wound or restore a nutri- nutrient imbalance that we have created through grazing or through ploughing. Or um, so. You know, back to your question, you know. I don't have weeds at home. I have plants I used to call weeds, absolutely. I actually, funnily enough, have less of them. Um, I have less scotch thistle in my pasture because I pretty much, you know, I focus on what I want, not what I don't want. And what I want is perennial species of grass and forbs and so on. The thistles almost sort of disappear into the background. And I, when I do see them, I just think, thank you for being here because you're clearly doing something that I'm not aware of or I've forgotten about. or you know, the, you've been recruited, and if we do our job as, gra- as grass managers, and we, and we have, if one of our objectives is to increase the perennial component of our pasture, those weeds will become redundant because we don't give them the the need. There's no need, or there's less need for them to be there. Mm-hmm. Now we've spoken a lot about the health of your pastures, the health of your cattle. I understand it was another light bulb moment when you started to realise that your cattle are actually there to feed people. So when did that happen, that sort of paradigm with, with growing nutritious food? Yeah, that was um, all happened about the same time, probably after I'd done a grazing for profit course and I was, you know, I was thinking then about animal health, um, plant health, soil health, business health, and it was probably a couple of years after that and I met my now wife um, who was very conscious of health and food and organics and that sort of thing. And I considered 
for the first time that, you know, the food that I was growing, wheat, beef, and mutton and whatever, that people were eating that. You know, mm. before I was, a, you know, I, I'd consider myself a commodity farmer. I didn't really care who bought it as long as someone did and paid me reasonable money for it. <laughs> they gave you um, some cash, all of that. Paid me even cash under the table in a yep. bag in the car park, wherever <laughs> it was. So, um, so it was more luck. about... It was a reasonably prescriptive way of operating because there was a, you know, there was a system in place, and we, yeah, you know, we sold our um, our weaners at, you know, three hundred and fifty kilos and into the feedlots at um, uh, in December, you know, as an example, um, and that was fine. That was the end of story. But when I considered that, you know, my management of the animals um, through their life, uh, and 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 more so in the last sort of year or months of their lives with, you know, different treatments. Um, that, you know, people were actually going to eat this one day, this steak. And um, I got really uncomfortable about it because, you know, I knew, I mean, I was pretty strict with, or very strict with withholding periods and all that sort of stuff. But the more I read about treatments and, you know, residuals and longevity and that sort of stuff, I just started really thinking, I don't know whether I want to, I started considering and asking myself the question, you know, was I contributing to people's health or was I, you know, contributing to their to illness? You know, was it what how how was I how were my management decisions impacting on the people who ate this food? And so that for me was a was a big change of everything because, you know, if if I had decided and at that point I decided um, I didn't want to take the risk. I didn't want to use I didn't want to handle some of these treatments myself. And I didn't want to put it on animals that then would be, you know, potentially, well, they'd be eaten by someone. So did that change your marketing? Did that change the way that you sold your product then or in sort of a bit more control than just sort of sending them off to the sale yards or wherever they Yeah. Were? Well, it, what it did do is created the opportunity to sell clean or cleaner. Um, well, it was clean. There was actually yeah. nothing, no treatments at all. A clean product to whether it's a butcher shop or a family or individual or whatever, you know, that – that's what we explored. We did box beef into Sydney for a few years. Um, we did some local stuff. We, you know, we, we sold lamb and pork in the same way. So, you know, it was, we were able to hand on heart say these animals have not been treated with any chemicals and they haven't been grazing on any pasture that had been treated with chemicals. Um, we're not certified as well, um, which is worth noting that certification for me, organic certification is a, is a wonderful thing and for consumers, you know, it gives them some um, confidence that what they're buying is clean and, and so on. That's great. I don't, I'm not certified because, as I understand it, the certification system is not about quality. They don't test the soil or test the, not yet, or not, not at this point anyway, test the soil, test the product, as in chemical residues. It's more about compliance to, um, you know, uh, a standard of of of, um, of production which doesn't involve, say, chemicals. You know, so it's what you're not doing is what's important. What I'm interested in is what we are doing. You know, we are applying compost um, and some you know, biodynamic um, preparations to pasture. You know, we where we are treating them humanely and in a way that is conducive to their happiness. You know, we are moving them and using them as tools in the landscape, which is beneficial to the soil, which produces better grass, which produces a better better article anyway. So, um, you know, I say we're, we're certified by community and, you know, our customers are testament to that. 
um, the, the butchers we sell to and the, and the families we sell to. Well, look, um, to be honest, I'm going to full disclosure here. When I uh, have a guest, I tend to go a little bit stalkerish and, you know, research as much as I can. And your Facebook feed looks something, you know, is the who's who of Australian chefs, delicious dinners and film stars. That sort of has really, I guess, not only helped your business, but um, your ideals and that whole regenerative journey. There was an article about combining the agriculture and health portfolios for some of the reasons you've just <laughs> gone through, but can you give us a bit more of an idea of, of what, what's behind that? That's another good question. You've got some great questions, Jane. <laughs> I try. I try. No, you're doing well. No, no, no. Um, no, no, this is, no, no that's a really good point because I, yeah, some, I have said a number of times that, you know, I'd love to see that the, the agriculture and the health department become one department because they're so intrinsically linked. Mm. Um, you know, well, you did that to the Sydney it, Morning Herald, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it might have been, yes. Yeah. Um, so if we have an agricultural system that produces food that is nutrient-dense, so there's two parts of that, of, of food. You know, one is the sort of the absence of chemical, you know, um, residues and so on, um, and the other one is the the presence of nutrients, of density of nutrients, right? Because we can have, we can grow two types of tomatoes and one can be pretty much useless in terms of its, you know, it, its nutritious value to a human and the other one can be packed, you know, and they look exactly the same. So so let's, you know, can we, the result of, of, of people eating food that is not nutritious and is empty of, of value in that way um, and and has chemical in it leads to ill health. You know, that's not, not you know, it's I don't not rocket science. Need to have it anyway. It's not rocket science. Yeah. So if the if the values of both the health department and the ag department were aligned and they were the same department and working closely together, then the need and the the values that we put on human health would be impregnated, would be would be um, overlaid in and and creating a demand for food that supported those values of human health. So what would what would that look like? That would look like um, less use of chemical and more use of techniques and methods that produced food that was of more value and it was of greater nutrient density. Um, so how do you do that? You improve the soil. So farmers would, um, you know, in their list of priorities or what they focus on uh, in their day or their year, then soil health and improvement of that and the management of that would be much higher up on that list of priorities so you know if we've got an ag department produce and that's overseeing as it were or you know i'm not sure quite how they frame up their charter but are supporting an industry that is producing nutrient-dense food that's aligned with the goals and the values of a healthy society um then i mean quite simply we would have less of a of a um a health burden on society people would be healthier because they've got access to better food and it wouldn't be expensive because there'd be more of it there'd be more variety there'd be more um, i guess more competition to, you know and what we what we're essentially doing is we're creating a demand economy we're having people who demand better food from the producers do you think people are really getting into this attitude like what's the reaction that you've had to to this idea Oh, well, it's, it's only going in one direction. I mean, mm. it, it, more and more people are appreciated, understanding the connection between the food they eat and, and their own health. And there's lots of ways people get there. Some, some they go through a health crisis and they learn that way, the hard way. Others, you know, do it because it's, it's, a, it's an interesting and a, perhaps trendy thing to do. 
they see lots of it on social media and they go, oh, well, maybe there's something in this. There's lots of, and it doesn't really matter how they get to that point, but I guess that the good news is that more people are getting to that point of, of joining the dots and they're asking better questions. You know, where's my, where's that steak from? Is it grain fed or is it grass fed? Does it come from regeneratively, you know, regenerative farm or not? Um, what's the treatment of it, you know, ethically? Um, is there, um, what, what, what sort of, what chemicals are being used on it? How many, I mean, even how many kilometres has it come to get to this point? I mean, I think they're all really valid questions and, you know, produce, it just gives producers another opportunity um, to sell, you know, whether it's direct to customers or whether they go through a um, sort of an accreditation um, system um, whereby those processes and those those accreditation schemes, I mean, they've identified that the people want this sort of stuff. You know, a thousand guineas, for example, you know, they're, they're looking for that grass-fed fed, um, article. Um, you know, there they're, you know, they're, they're are other, um, you know, schemes that are, that identify that you know people are asking more for grass-fed beef. I used to go into a into a um you know I still do go to restaurants and ask whether it's you know this steak is grain or grass-fed, and quite often um, they can't tell you. Know, you. No, well, they, yeah, if they don't, if they can't tell me, this is it's a, yeah, it's a good point. If they can't <laughs> tell me that's interesting in itself, but if mm. they quite often they say, oh, it's, of course it's grass-fed, sir, and I'll say, oh, that's that's a pity. I'll have the fish. You know, and so yes, I'm making a bit of a statement, but mm. um, and look, I've eaten plenty of grain-fed beef in my day, and don't get me wrong, I'm no sort of grass-fed um, snob, mm. but at the end of the day, I like supporting farmers. I know what goes into um, the production of a grass-fed, a clean grass-fed um, steak, mm. and so you know, in my dining choices, I want to support the farmers who are doing that. Now we've got a couple timers against us, but we've got a couple more things I just want to touch on. But just quickly, tell me about thankful for farmers. It's a, it's a really gaining momentum. I was luckily, well, not only luckily, but I was gratefully the recipient of an award last uh, last year um, as part of uh, Delicious Food Awards and uh, the National um, Awards in Sydney. Well, that would be that. an awards dinner to attend. Goodness oh, it was, me. I will tell you, it was amazing. The food, the people. It was, it was, was it grass-fed, though, Charlie? Um, I don't know that I actually ate. I was a bit nervous on the night. <laughs> uh, well, I was after anyway. Um, I didn't know. I was invited there because um, I had been involved with the previous year's um, awards and some had done some um, filming for the, for, the, for the previous year's awards, and they'd used some of the footage there for, for last year so that, um, uh, in, in those ones. So I, um, I was... I was baited by Lucy Allen from Delicious, um, who said, "Come down and, and, and we've got some. We're going to use some of the video from last year, and we just want you'd be nice if you're there to see that." And I went, oh, "Okay, cool." Poodle along, had a lovely night, and then there was an award which they, they mentioned that said, "Oh, this award's a new award. It's from sponsored um, or supported by Thankful for Farmers, an organisation which is um, uh, essentially supporting farmers to adopt um, you know, technologies and regenerative practices and support community." Um, and uh, and I read out what the, the prize was, and it was a trip to New York, and, you know, and I went, oh wow, that'd be really cool. Whoever that, whoever gets that's going to be that's a lucky, that's fantastic. Anyway, they read my name out, and, and then so that's why I was there. Um, wow. And basically, so about six weeks later, no, it was kind of like three weeks later. It was some pretty short period of time. Um, I was off to New York. Um, and went to a number of there was dinners and meetings and the 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 thankful for farmers global advisory board was created. Um, Matt Moran went and a fellow from PwC, Craig Herity, and a few others and 
the Kim and Mike from Thankful for Farmers, uh, I, I've got to be, you know, big shout out to that to those guys. They put this together. So what Thankful for Farmers is, is a, a charity which partners with brands, food brands, um, and well, not necessarily just food brands, but brands um, identifying that um, the that product is stamped with a Thankful for Farmers little logo, and when one buys that product, a portion of that. That, that product, the, the, the price, the cost, um, goes to Thankful and then Thankful um, supports um, uh, farmers and, 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 and businesses that have applied for those funds. And the criteria around that is it's basically that those funds will go towards, um, say, from a farmer's point of view, might be adoption of some technologies or methods that are more regenerative, mm-hmm. um, that they're contributing to mental health of individuals and communities and supporting rural communities. So... Um, it's a wonderful organisation that's 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 raising money through partnering with products and other businesses to to afford for um, you know regenerative farmers and 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 businesses to to do a better job you know, yep. do a better job of what of of growing food and 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 operating in the world as farmers and producers of food. So and 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 that obviously comes down to not just producing food, but but. But, but stewards of our environment as well. So um, really honoured to be involved with um, with Thankful for Farmers. And, and uh, there's been, like most businesses this year, Jane, there's been some bit of, um, bit of a hold-up in proceedings for the last few months. Yep, a bit of a um, pause in proceedings, yes. Yeah, but we're back on track and uh, it'll be a big year and, and, and subsequent years that, you know, you'll see more products on the shelves with Thankful logos on them. Um, more initiatives and, and projects will be created through the, the the funds afforded to farmers and, and individuals, and um, it's a really exciting thing. Yeah, terrific. Well, look, and Charlie, you've got your own podcast now, The Regenerative Journey. Still can't say it. I'm really sorry. No, um, you did. You, and- well done. You <laughs> but you know, do you spend any time in the paddock anymore? I feel like you've got quite a few little projects on the go. But what yeah. started the – what kicked the podcast off and, and getting – what kind of support have you got around that at the moment? Um, yeah, look, I, it was something I've been thinking about for some years, being an avid fan of um, podcasts um, anyway. And then um, being, uh, being a recipient of the Bob Hawke Landcare Award a couple of years ago uh, by uh, Landcare Australia, um, um, support that. And they, uh, with that, um, with some funds, and we proposed to Landcare Australia, we use those funds to create a podcast. And, and as a consequence, um, Landcare Australia via the Bob Hawke Landcare Award have, have supported the creation and rolling out of the podcast in its first series. Uh, I'm finding it a really wonderful way for me to learn quite selfishly, but if I can I can have other people um, tap in via the podcast to those conversations and learn and understand and tap into the wisdom of my interviewees, it's just a lovely thing. I actually, I was at a Landcare meeting the other day and um, one of the ex-chairs who has been an avid land carer and and pastoralist for quite some time made the comment that back in his day if your cattle weren't dying by December you were doing something you weren't flogging your land hard enough and how far we've come (laughs) with with that attitude yeah no that's that's interesting isn't it that that's um because it was a very um one-dimensional I mean again and I I have to say you know I was a very pretty pretty one-dimensional farmer myself you know that that um, you know what can we get out of this land? What can we produce and 
and and how and and what's the easiest and quickest way to do that and and you know we were sort of in a depleted mindset so well, i think it, what amazed me is the attitude had changed so dramatically in one generation sometimes it takes just that little bit longer to sort of you know everyone implements just you know whether it be fencing off riparian zones or just those little changes but um in that particular family it was a dramatic turnaround <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's it's sort of contagious this stuff, Jane. And and I know Jim Alexander, my um my overseer, you know, he's he's sort of on his journey. He's well well and truly into it. Um, and his father David, he he's picked it up as well. And you know, I guess through what Jim, you know, Jim had been talking to him about and seeing and 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 hearing. And and David, um, he's a very open-minded sort of fella, and he's um he's loving this this whole sort of new way of thinking. Um, so you know. It's sort of sometimes it's um it's uh, yeah it's certainly not something that you just have to be young to pick up it's you know any age and a lot of compelling reasons why why it's a good thing to to think about at least yeah exactly now Jolly are we seeing you at Beef Australia uh, or Beef Twenty One I certainly hope so we, well I was at the one a couple of years ago the the last one and I was saying to fellow Graham Rees a fellow um, who does KLR marketing he uh. He, we were, we were joking, saying that we should rename it Grass Week, not Beef Week. Oh yeah, we? good luck with that. <laughs> Given the I can see where you're going, but uh, I feel like that's that's a tough sell. That's more than a one generational change. I feel. <laughs> there you go. Well, I will see you there next year. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, there's one last question I've asked everyone. This question on our our podcast series so far. I want to know your favourite cut of beef, not for one of your fancy movie star comes over dinners. You know all things on the table, I want to know what the cut you are going to have on a Tuesday night with your family. What's your go-to? Yeah. Well, I have to say my wife's Italian and oh, I Oh, hashtag hot it. wife. That's the other thing I found out hot while wife. researching too. <laughs> I know. I stopped doing that because someone told me what it actually, what, 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 not so much what it means, but what it might, what, oh, well, what people can read into it. So <laughs> I stopped doing that one. Right. Well, I'll um, take that one back. But she's, <laughs> But she still is hot, regardless. Um, so, so, so what? Um, she she does an amazing osso buco, and I know that might sound like a bit of a trendy cut, but it's basically just you know shin just cut sideways. Um, but it is beautiful because I don't know what she does to it, but it just tastes amazing. So, um, whilst it's just not like a throw a steak on a barbie and you know turn it once, turn it turn it twice. Um, it does take some preparation, but oh my goodness, it's a it's a it's a wonderful feed. And of course, you get you get the um, you get seconds the next day. So exactly. that that'll be my that'll be my go to my go to um, feed for sure. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Charlie. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you, and we'll catch you at Beef Twenty One. Yeah, looking forward to it, Jane. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.